Cause it's a pain A destiny child You know it will be rocking Cause it's flipping insane It's just a pain A destiny child More precious than a diamond on a plane Welcome to The Pick We are your hosts John Otney Colin Westman And Sean Lemmy this is the movie podcast where each episode, one of us, your host, picks a movie. We talk about it and at the end of the episode. Someone picks our next movie. No questions asked. That's the power of the pick. I think we always ask questions. It's the power of the pick. <laughs> I mean, we don't stop the pick from happening, but we do. We're like, why'd you pick that? Okay. This episode is my pick. <laughs> you know, a great man once said, it happens. Do you know which man I'm talking about? You're talking about Forrest I'm Gump. I'm talking about Forrest Gump. Originator of the phrase, it happens. I never knew watching that whether he actually said shit happens or if it was censored for TV. Because <laughs> I've never watched that movie not on TV. You know what? For as big a fan of Forrest Gump as I am, I don't know if I've ever not seen it on TV. It's always on TV. Yeah. Maybe, maybe back in the 90s, but I don't remember because everyone had to watch it back in the day. Uh, but yes, it happens. And in no place is that more true than in my pick for today's episode, It Chapter 2, which at the time of this podcast has opened up to plus $90 million. It currently has a 64% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 59% on Metacritic, and a 72 on IMDb, because people on IMDb are dumb. That seems really high. <laughs> uh, we have a lot to say about this film. But first, I want to ask you guys, what scares you? What if, because you know the thing about Pennywise the Clown is he he turns into what you fear the most. So if he materialized into something, what do you think it would be? Hmm, it's a deep question. Just, what's your greatest? It's really fear? personal. <laughs> I remember I got in trouble for this uh, in a screenwriting class because one of our homework assignments was like list five things you're afraid of. It was supposed to like you know give us ideas for scripts. I came in with a list of like being totally alone and you know <laughs> staring into the infinite. And the screaming professor was like, "That's that's okay." But I was looking more like scary clowns or wild cats or something. What do you uh, define as staring into the infinite? <laughs> Is that like your comatose, or you're just like forced to stare into space for the rest of your life? Uh, it's more like trying to process. The fact that we live in an infinitely expanding universe and we're just meaningless tiny specks. So just it. being in the headspace where you can't get out of that and you're just thinking yeah, about like your you're, smallness. You're just so forever. consumed with your irrelevance in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> okay. That's pretty out there. Pretty cosmic. But it is very cosmic. So that, that works. Colin? I don't like really big bugs. Really big bugs? <laughs> I'm kind of on the same wavelength. I was thinking like a giant wasp, maybe. Oh, God. Like a yeah. giant wasp with... Um... You know, and also, I'm afraid of fire. Maybe some get some fire in the mix. Like some bugs that are on fire. Like a flaming wasp with yeah. a MAGA hat. Is that... <laughs> Sounds like a Pokemon. <laughs> What's that evolving to? A... a... A flaming... A KK cocoon. Oh, no! <laughs> you nailed it! That was so good! Except a wasp doesn't... That'd be like devolving. <laughs> no, it's, it's turning into like a like the hive. 
There's like there's like a bunch of little bees. I'm definitely afraid of like hives and like wasps' nests. Yeah. Jesus Christ, that's what killed Macaulay Culkin in that one movie, My Girl. <laughs> Saddest moment of all time. Loss of innocence, like like today's movie. That's right. Spoilers are on the table. It <laughs> spoiled my girl. Colin, you want to chime in about my girl? I guess you are, no. it. I guess you said bugs. Um, I figured you say like Jeff Bezos because you hate Amazon so much. Um, yeah, but he's already like. What else could he do? I guess I, he could turn me into a robot. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, like okay. Jeff Bezos. To right. me. I don't know. Turn the inf- I got the infinite and Jeff Bezos turning somebody into a robot. Not the answers that I expected, but I'll take them. Okay, so before we get uh, too far into our it conversation, we're gonna do a segment we call Lil Picks. Lil Picks. <laughs> Lil Picks being uh, each of us will recommend something. Could be a book. Could be a movie. Could be an album. Could be whatever you want. And you set the precedent last week of you can. Inverse pick something as well. <laughs> I can pick against something if I want. Yeah. Uh, but that's not the case today. Um, I'll go first. I'll try to be uh, I'll try to be quick with this one. So in getting ready for this podcast, I tried to read as much as I could about it and uh, and consume as much it content as I could, and that included watching the it miniseries, 1990 ABC. Uh, in my memory, it was bad. But I watched it again, and you know what? I kind of liked it. It's it's goofy. It it has the charm of like an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Like it's about that level of scary. And it's funny because that book is so violent and disturbing, and this is it's so tame. But there's it's kind of charming in that way. And I really like the cast. It actually has a really good cast. The adult stuff wasn't as boring as I remember. I actually liked it better than the kids stuff in that particular miniseries. I say miniseries, but it's just two parts. Um, and you can watch it right now on the Sci-Fi Channel app. And they put it all together, so it's like plus three hours. So I kind of broke it up. Yeah, and that's what surprised me, is you talked about how it actually is presenting both stories side by side like it is in the book. Because yeah. in my memory, there was one episode about kids, one episode about the adults, sort of like these these more recent movies that came out. Unless this current edit totally rearranged everything when you watch it as one movie, but I doubt it. No way anyone was that ambitious to like, I'm going to really get into this and, <laughs> and mix it up. But no, it's fun. And uh, Tim Curry is really good as Pennywise. He does like a Brooklyn accent, which is a really fun take. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, Richie, beep, beep. I mean, I can't do it. He, only he can do it. But, uh, hey, Georgie. That's that's it. Sean nailed it. Yeah. Um, and something that I wanted to integrate into our it conversation a little bit later is, uh, as we go through the Losers Club, I want to touch on that character and how they're portrayed in this version as well to kind of mm. add some more layers to the conversation. Mm. So I'm gonna kind of hold off on some more details on that for when we talk about it chapter two. So that's it. I'm good. Let's move on. Uh, Colin. Your little pick. My little pick is the little pick I was going to do last week, but I didn't because Sean already picked a cartoon. Uh, It's uh, the Netflix series Tuca and Birdie, which I've been catching up with, even though it seems, I don't know, maybe kind of pointless because it already got canceled. But I watched the first episode maybe like a week or two before it got canceled. 
And so I was like, well, I started this. Maybe I'll just keep watching. And also, it's it seemed like people liked it, and people were kind of upset that it got canceled since doesn't seem like Netflix cancels that many things. But um, now they do. This yeah. is the year. Of, That's their thing, I right? Guess. It's like three seasons and you're done, unless it's the biggest show in mm. the world. Like Stranger Things, yeah. which we should talk about, or maybe not. I don't know. It's yeah. It plays, it, I, I think that Stranger Things is a big part of its success. Yeah. I mean, it has one of the kids from the show <laughs> in the movie. Anyway, uh, Tuca and Birdie was created by Lisa Hanawalt, who worked on BoJack Horseman, and the show is it's it's almost is in the BoJack Horseman universe, except it's not actually but it's still kind of the same concept bunch of anthropomorphized animal people just like living life doing basically just regular human stuff but they got all these weird animal quirks and they live in this like colorful uh like fantastical world which is you know a little different from bojack horseman he just seems so bored uh, it's just a magical world I'm just, i don't know i don't know <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> anyways it's a fun uh, concept there's yeah. not a ton of things that have done this no and it's i would say it's more fun and playful in general than bojack horseman which uh you know can be pretty heavy in a few episodes but it's still also very funny and uh this one i don't know it kind of reminds me of bojack combined with like broad city i guess because just about to uh young women in the city just like kind of having fun although this is it's kind of built around them sort of drifting apart because one of the one of the bird ladies just moved in with their boyfriend, and he's played by Stephen Yoon. Tuka and Birdie are played by Tiffany Haddish and Ali Wong. Uh, Which one's the one moving in with Stephen Yoon? That would be Ali Wong. Who's Figures, because she's always pregnant. She's always settling down. Also, she's all over Netflix. I feel like all her specials are on there, plus that, that movie, Always Be My Maybe. Oh, yeah. yeah. She's, she's queen of Netflix right now. She's a Netflix Netflix person. I thought you were going to say a Netflix nut for some Netflix, reason. She's a Netflix nut. Her and Allison Brie. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, pretty fun show. I haven't quite watched all of the first season. Mm. I'm very close. I only have one more episode left. But uh, And you are going to watch that episode. Yeah, but I, I do wish there had been more seasons. Because even BoJack, like, it was pretty good in its first season, but didn't really find its it's groove till the the later seasons so kind of a shame but yeah on its own that one season's pretty enjoyable yeah it's pretty worrying that netflix has been so open about like we use analytics to recommend content to people and the stuff that doesn't get recommended much we just cancel and it's that's so frightening because it's like you're taking there's no humanity in this at all and like already like that sort of corporate decision making was frowned upon for not taking into account artistic growth and just they're just not giving any chance to so much stuff now yeah i feel like that's kind of a a thing that's kind of rampant in all tv now where it's just like shows have to be great in their first season now which you know like seinfeld took a few seasons and I mean, like, all the great sitcoms of the 80s and 90s, and like, took a while. It's so weird because there's so many services. There's so much 
opportunity for these shows to exist mm-hmm. but they're for some reason everyone just wants to have their prestigious shows that everybody watches I think it's just because it's become too competitive yeah it's and I mean there. you could say that in a less wide TV landscape maybe a show like this doesn't even get made but because there are so many shows right now there's lots of stuff that you know fills different niches uh, Sean, what is your little pick? My little pick, um, I decided this one because I think I'm right at the apex of me liking it, and I'm going to have to turn against it real soon because it's bad for me. Um, and so it is a mobile game that I've been playing called Gundam Battle Gunpla <laughs> Warfare. Yeah. Uh, also known as Gundam Breaker Mobile, I think, in Japan. Also known as Pokemon Go with Gundams. Well, not really. Not really. Um, That's how you pitched it to me. I I must have done that on accident because it's. <laughs> um, or maybe I, I just filled in the blanks when you said it was a Gundam game where you like catch Gundam stuff, and I was like, eh, yes, like Pokemon Go. Yeah. So um, I've I've talked about the Gundam Breaker games before. They've been on my top ten list a couple times now. Uh, over the many, many years we've done our blog. I feel like you talked about a Gundam Breaker game, like, was it 2013 or 12? Does it go back that far? It might go back that far. I just remember we did, like, a like a best of the year so far where you're talking about something. Yeah, I, I think... six years ago. I think one of the ones I played was on PlayStation Vita, if you can remember that far back. Wow. Um, and it's... There have kind of been a few, like, sub-series within the Gundam franchise that have been successful in games. There's the Gundam Versus games... Which were the super popular arcadey, you know, two-on-two games. Um, but the ones I've really liked of late are these Gundam Breaker games, which are um, third-person action games, sort of in the style of Diablo, where you um, kill a bunch of mobile suits and you get parts from them, and then you can take those parts and assemble um, your, your your dream mobile suit, um, which is really cool. So they break they break every mobile suit that's in the game down into its head, torso, arms, legs, back. Shield, ranged weapon, and melee weapon. And so you can, you know, I've got one that's like got the wings from Gundam Wing, and it's got the, uh, you know, head from Gundam Exia, and all these other stuff that you've never heard of. Um, It's got some tall geese, thunder thigh legs on it. It's really cool. Um, And on top of uh, getting the parts, you also can unlock um, decals and paint schemes for. Uh, your mobile suit so you have a lot of control over how it looks um, but then on top of that there's the fact that you're playing a video game with it so what the game does is incentivize getting up to 15 of the same part that you can combine together into each other to maximize their stats um, as well as the, it gives parts inherent rarities so some parts are just better than others so you you got to kind of balance, am, am I playing this game aesthetically, or am I playing this game to kick ass? Um, How are you playing this game? <laughs> I played it aesthetically for a while, and now I'm playing it to kick ass, which is why I'm thinking <laughs> I've got to get out now while I can. Yeah. Um, because it also has, it's a free-to-play game, but it has all the horrible hooks that these games can have built into it. <laughs> So it has an energy system, which I don't know if you, either of you guys have ever played a mobile game that has an energy system, but basically what it is, is you, you like every five minutes you get one energy, and you have to spend a certain amount of energy to play a level. 
So you can only play the game so much in one sitting, unless you're willing to spend money to instantly refill your energy. Otherwise, you just have to wait for your energy bar to refill. On top of that, you, can, you only get really upgrade material from actually beating levels. So in the other, the console uh, Gundam Breaker games, you're actually getting parts of Gundams and mobile suits. In this one, it's more just like upgrade material. And so to acquire new mobile suit parts, you have to um, open gachapons, which are these so basically like slot machines where you can either get one or ten pieces at a time. Um, and the game starts you off kind of generously giving you the coins to roll. But that dries up real fast, and um, opening a gachapon is really expensive. It, I think it costs around like $15 for 10 parts. Um, and again, you want to get 15 of each part that you like. So you could very easily like spend hundreds, thousands of dollars on this game if you wanted to. Um, you don't have to, and I haven't. You can play it for free and put together, you know, something, and you get the free rolls. There've actually been like a few times the game has gone down, and like they gave everyone a free gachapon, like to make up for that. But when you get to the point where you're like, I hope the game goes down because I could really use another roll. I think that's probably a sign that I gotta stop playing. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't even talk about the gameplay itself. It's um, it's like a third-person shooter. You use one finger as sort of like an analog stick, and then there are on-screen buttons for um, skills and weapons you have on your mobile suit. And you just automatically lock on to a target at a time. So you just run, you're just you running straight at them, basically shooting and using your sword. So it's not extremely deep either. Um, so I think I should stop. It's going to be a problem. <laughs> How long have you been playing it so far? I, it came out in August, so it's not super long. Okay. But we'll see where you are next yeah, August. I, I'm, I really hope that I'll stop soon. <laughs> is it? Is this game fairly popular in America? I don't think so. Like I haven't seen a lot of people talking about it. It's definitely got a community, but a lot of the people I get matched with online have Japanese names. Mm. Um which maybe and do you kick their ass? I do. I mean, so so one other aspect of it is it's not um, synchronized multiplayer. So you have like a pilot character, which is another thing you can roll for because they're famous pilots from the various Gundam shows. Um, and so you you battle the you battle someone else's mobile suit, but it's just the computer controlling it. So it's pretty easy to just build something really overpowered and blow it up instantly. <laughs> So I guess I would recommend the game if you have the willpower to just like have a good time with it and let it go, which I don't know if I do. Mm-mm. Just let it go. Great song. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very popular. No transition. Okay. Um, it. So we like to start with a little bit of background. I'm going to do a deep dive, but I'm going to try to do it quick. Okay. You can take the long route too. I don't know much about the roadless this universe. Traveled. Yeah. <laughs> okay. How did Stephen Edwin King come up with it? So it's the late seventies, I think nineteen seventy-eight, and Stephen King was with his family in Colorado, and he drove by an old wooden bridge, which reminded him of the folktale Three Billy Goats Gruff. Do you guys remember that story? Yeah. Um... <laughs> 
<laughs> when I was in elementary school, I was in a like a stage production of Ooh. I was the middle billy goat. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so if you recall, there is a enemy. There is a bad guy, mm-hmm. and it's a troll. I remember the troll. Yeah, there's a troll living under the bridge. Taylor Skinner. (laughs) Iconic performance, Taylor Skinner. Uh, So Stephen King thought, what if I had like a Grimm's fairy tale type villain as you know the antagonist in in one of my books? And he kind of just mold on that idea for for years, adding in elements here and there. While he's living, while he's living in Maine, he started to research like. The history of Maine's like sewage system, so he kind of joined those ideas together. So it's kind of like a modern day fairy tale, which makes a lot of sense because in a lot of those old fairy tales, it's usually something coming after kids. So he came up with a story coming after kids, and it's weird because I can't think of a lot of horror anything before this that where kids are victims. Kind of, I kind of original. I don't know. Ansel and Gretel. Yeah, go well, but yeah, I mean, like in between that, in between like two hundred years, because <laughs> obviously I was saying those old fairy tales is like where that began, and then and then we and then we have it, and then there's a blank spot in the middle. Yeah. So the novel was published in 1986. I want you guys to guess what number of book this was for Stephen King. He, his first book was 1974, so twelve years. This includes like short story compilations. Does this include too. books he wrote under a pseudonym? Yes. I'm going to guess 16. Sean? 40. <laughs> That's no fun. 22. Okay. Which is insane. In 12 yeah. years, Stephen King had 22 books out. This was his 22nd. Uh, it was a big hit. I think it was the biggest fiction book of 1986. Hmm. And I think it's either his most successful or second most successful book in general. How many of these books are fucking enormous like it is? <laughs> At this point, not very many. The Stand is very long. The Stand's mm-hmm. plus 1,000 pages. I think that might be Stephen King's um, most, most... Because there's been so many editions, so that's probably his best-selling book. Um, and Salem's Lot is probably like 600 to 700 pages. So. And those both predate it? Yes. Those are both late 70s books. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that's it. Uh, so yeah, big hit. Uh, they made the miniseries in 1990, which I'll touch on here and there. And then in the late 2000s, we got, uh, whispers of a, a new it movie. Um, but before I get to that, I want to ask you guys, how do you feel about Stephen King in general? Just so people listening to the podcast know where we all stand going into this. Just in general. Just thoughts. Personally, I've never felt very compelled to read his books for whatever reason. Um, But I appreciate a lot of the film adaptations of what he's done. Um, I mean, they're very pulpy, like... Like they're like screenplay ready types. Of yeah, books. And, and a lot of them he's written the screenplays for, like Pet Cemetery. He wrote the screenplay for. It's probably a few others where mm. he was there to deliver it. Colin. Yeah, I, I, feel. I feel about the same as Sean. I think. <laughs> yeah, I've never felt compelled to read one of his books. Maybe I should. I just don't know where where would be the book to start. Carrie is it's the first one and it's short. It's, okay. it's less than two hundred pages even. I would say Carrie is a great book. Uh, after that, I don't know, because I haven't even read The Shining. I'm a f- total fraud. I'm, mm. I just started it recently. 
But uh, the first book I ever read by Stephen King was The Long Walk, which is kind of like a Hunger Games type story about these kids running a marathon until they die. Okay. So that's a good one. That's an early one too. That's probably like his fourth, fifth book. I definitely recommend that one. But do you guys feel exhausted by the amount of Stephen King content or do you don't care because you're indifferent to it? I mean, the whole thing about Stephen King to me is that he is inexhaustible. He is, you know, he is the solar power of movie creativity. Like you, you can just draw on it forever. So the day we're recording this podcast, Stephen King came out with a book today. <laughs> it's called The Institute, and uh, it's already becoming a TV show. Because most of his stuff, they'll sell the rights beforehand, but they're like, I guess they... They got enough of a consensus. Like, yeah, this is good enough. David E. Kelly's going to do a TV show. Wow. Sure. David E. Kelly's second Stephen King show because he's already doing Mr. Mercedes, which no one watches because he's on the AT&T network, whatever the hell that is. Well, maybe it'll be transitioned to HBO Max. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, because uh, The Outsider, which is a Stephen King show coming out next year, <laughs> um, might be on HBO Max. I feel like it's going gonna, it's, it's it's gonna to be on HBO but they haven't said if it's HBO or HBO Max. Oh. Um, but yeah, Stephen King for me, he's probably like my favorite author, despite the fact that I haven't even read some of his big works. He, saying he's your favorite author is kind of like saying Spielberg is your favorite filmmaker, though. It's not. Is super, he your favorite filmmaker? He is my favorite filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're that guy. I'm that guy. <laughs> um, I've seen most of his great films, except for Amistad. Yeah. Have you seen Amblin? I have seen Amblin. I do feel like, though, uh, just popularity-wise and critically, it seems like the Stephen King adapted properties are kind of hit and miss, though. Oh, for sure. So it is a little odd to me that people keep coming back to that well so often. I mean, yeah, there's been tons of like classic movies. Carrie, The Dead Zone, Shawshank, which I guess is the greatest movie of all time, <laughs> according to IMDb. IMDb. But then IMDb. there's like stuff like... Maximum Overdrive, which Stephen King directed himself while he was like so coked out of his mind. And The Mangler and Dreamcatcher, written and directed by Lawrence Kasdan, our featured director on last episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, I think what I like about him so much is he's kind of the king of the what-if premise. That's how he he explains his process. He's like, what if your car was evil? What if you could stop the Kennedy assassination? What if your dog was evil? <laughs> and they, what like, if your dog stopped the Kennedy assassination? <laughs> <laughs> Sequel? Mm-hmm. And like that may sound like a simple way to, to do it, but yeah, he's come up with so many great premises, and I love how he will include parts of his life. It, it's kind of messed up that The Shining is kind of based on himself, like how he was a raging alcoholic for a long period of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, he just knows how to include details in his life and put it into his work. But also just the fact that I've always found his work um, relatable in the fact that I'm sure he's like a billionaire but he still writes stories that are very blue collar they're always like small towns like sheriffs they're usually, or they're about like writers that are just him but they're usually like kind of middle of the road writers and even stuff like The Stand is told from a folksy point of view of like just regular people it's not like it's told from like a government agent's perspective you know, he doesn't include a lot of that stuff. It's usually just regular, regular folk. So I like that he's kind of kept that up throughout his whole career. It's like the opposite of Tom Clancy. The opposite of Tom Clancy. Uh, so yeah, I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time on King. Um, let's let's move on to uh, It. Though I did want to talk a little bit about the backstory of It, because it's kind of crazy how long that movie was in development. 
So it started in 2009. Um, David Kajganish, who was the showrunner of The Terror, he also wrote that recent Suspiria movie. Mm-hmm. So he, he was the first person who's like, WB's like, you're going to make this movie. You're going to write this movie. But it has to be 120 pages. It has to be all of it. So no wonder that fell apart. Because that's yeah. an insane <laughs> request to make a thousand plus page book a 120 page screenplay. So then it went on to, of course, Kerry Fukunaga and Chase Palmer. And they spent three years working on it. And I think you can read their screenplay somewhere online. I've heard like it's way darker. It's way more trippy. It's just way weirder. And that's probably why it never got made. Because the studio was like, no, this is weird. This is fucked up shit. This is like NC-17 <laughs> shit. Even though that book is about there at that level. Yeah. They'd even cast um, Will Poulter. You know, from... Uh, you guys know Will Poulter, right? From Bandersnatch? Yeah, from Bandersnatch. From uh, The Maze Runner? Uh, I is think he? so. I think he's yeah, I think you're right. I think you're he's right. He's like the bad kid. Yeah, he is the bad kid. Uh, and they said he was amazing. But, of course, uh, as that fell apart, schedules got messed up and he dropped out of the project, too. And then 2015, they gave it to um, Andres Muschietti, or now, as he's known, Andy Muschietti. I don't know when that changed or why that changed. It's like, I'm American now. I'm American. He's from Argentina. And he'd only made one movie, which is Mama, which is based off his short. He made the short and it went viral. And they made Mama with Jessica Chastain. And I really like it. It's 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 kind of like a ghost story movie uh, with the creepy mama ghost. And I like it. Um, I would recommend that. Uh, so, yeah, they, uh, they handed it off to him. Gary uh, Doberman, who's WB's go-to um, expanded universe conjuring guy. When you um, say WB, I just think of the network WB. <laughs> Warner Brothers. <laughs> Gotta say Warner Brothers. Right? Yeah, Gary Doberman. Um, the network WB hasn't existed really in a long hasn't. time. <laughs> <laughs> just makes me think of Hampton J. Frog. Gary Doberman. Yeah, he does the, all like the Annabelle movies, okay. basically. He's the go-to Annabelle guy. And then I, he took Carrie Fukunaga and Chase Palmer's script and rewrote it. And if I recall, Carrie uh, Fukunaga and Chase Palmer are still credited on that 2017 It movie for screenplay credit. So I guess a lot of their stuff is still in that movie. I'm not sure which. I'm not sure what stuff is Gary Dauberman's. Um, but I don't know. And Oh, yeah, Gary Dauberman, also developer of the Swamp Thing TV show. Just throw that in there. A little extra fun fact. So, it 2017. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I just want to know if you guys liked that movie. I feel like you know how Sean feels about it. I don't know how you feel about the first it movie, Colin. Um, I thought it was fine. I liked it, I, I guess. I don't know. I haven't thought about it a lot since I saw it. Didn't need to leave a huge impact on me, but um, I don't know. I feel like it has the same... I don't know, good things and bad things about it as this second one does, but maybe a little less of the bad things where it's, it, I mean, the second one is like very tonally all over the place. The first one was kind of like that too, but not as extreme, which I kind of liked more. And I guess I, I suppose maybe the thing that I felt, and I think a lot of people felt was that it, the scary stuff didn't work nearly as much as like the coming of age stuff and just mm-hmm. like the kids just hanging out being r- rowdy kids like that stuff was all good and i enjoyed but uh i was like oh there's a killer clown he's he's not that scary but whatever <laughs> these kids are fun 
<laughs> Do you guys think a horror movie has to be scary to be good? No. I think I agree with that. I don't. Just like, I was thinking about this. But it also depends, like, what you mean by scary. Like, I think there are lots of movies that are kind of unnerving and put you on edge, but don't have any, like, you know, scares. <laughs> a lot of people criticize jump scares, but I think yeah. in a movie like, like, like this, Chapter 2 or Chapter 1, I think those are scary. Like... What more do I do? I want it to linger with me for days. I don't know what kind of scary are we talking about. Like a jump scare, I got scared. That's a scare, right? Yeah. I don't know, but I I do feel like the first one maybe tries more jump scares than the second one. I think it probably does. The second one's like a like a block blockbuster thriller action movie or something. I don't know. It's a little different. I think Link. Would you call it a horror movie if it's not scary? Is, is it does it just become another genre? What makes it a horror film? Yeah. I, I guess I, I guess know. one movie I think of is Bride of Frankenstein, which you mm. would put in the horror genre, but it's not scary at all. It's just a weird movie about a like tragic character, and like, I don't know. It's just kind of an all over the place. It's more like a sci-fi movie, I guess, but it's lumped in the horror genre. I think if things have that certain those certain elements, they get labeled horror, even if yeah. there's something else kind of. In in terms of blurred lines for genre, the example I was thinking of is Star Wars. Is Star Wars like really a science fiction movie, or is it just like a fantasy movie, or is it somewhere in the middle? Or sci-fi? Is that what it means? Is that it's it's fiction fictional science? Yeah, I mean, I I've always had that problem specifically with with genres like sci-fi and fantasy. Where it seems to be more describing the setting than the actual story structure. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. you could very easily have a science fiction, you know, film noir or a science fiction horror movie or a fantasy comedy, like Your Highness. Um, and so it's it's like it's weird that there are t- like there are some genres that give you what, like a, what the experience will be like, and other genres will just be like here here's like the tropes here's the setting basically yeah all right so let's talk about it chapter two to the losers we made an oath i swear if it isn't dead if it ever comes back we'll come back to we didn't stop it Pennywise. the clown can't let it happen again. Hello? Uh, I won't go too much into the background of this one. It's most of the same people returning. This time, Gary Dowerman. I think it's sole screenwriting credit, though I heard that they got like a Wonder Woman writer to punch up some of the humor, because apparently Gary Dowerman is not funny, which is what I heard. <laughs> um, which, is, which seems like a lot of work, because this movie is like half comedy. It's a yeah. lot of comedy. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of yucks in this one. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to do a little bit of the plot, just a little bit, and then I think we can go through the losers, and then hopefully that'll kind of fill in the story as we go along. I'm assuming if you're listening to this, you probably see, I hope you've seen the first movie or know what like we're talking about. And there's going to be plenty of spoilers. There's spoilers everywhere. Okay, so it Chapter 2, 27 years have passed since the last film, which was set in the 80s. And we're back in Derry, and Pennywise is back, and he's back to killing people. I guess not just kids, even though it seemed like he used to just kill kids, but now he kills adults, too. 
And uh, Mike Hanlon, the uh, town librarian slash historian, knows what he has to do. He has to call back the members of the Losers Club who, after they defeated Pennywise in the late 80s, um, vowed that if Pennywise would ever come back, that they would all reunite to take him down once more. Okay, so I think that's good. Start moving through the losers. Would would you guys prefer that I like give my two cents first, or I give a character and then I let you guys take it? Um, you'll probably know more than we do. So you yeah, should probably I think. take the lead. <laughs> I would love to hear Collins' take on Stanley Uris. Yeah, that's the thing. I don't even know who a lot of the characters... Like, you know them by name. You've spent so much time with Can these Can you tell characters. me which one is Stanley? Stanley is the... He's the least important member of the Losers oh, Club. Oh, is he the one that dies at the beginning? He dies this? at the beginning. He got a knock on his head in the last one or something. I don't remember what he does. <laughs> he did get a knock on his head. You're I, correct. I just remember in the scenes that they cut back to, he's got like his head all bandaged up. This is a character that uh, has never been fleshed out okay. in any adaptation because in the book, which goes back and forth between being a kid, being an adult, being a kid, the first time we ever introduce a Stanley is his suicide. So that's pretty much like his big thing in the book and in most do, things. Is that after having met the other losers? Is it the same? Like in this, they have a pattern of like introducing each of them. And Stanley's the last one you see, and he just kills himself. Um, I don't think so. I think just the first time we meet him, he just kills himself, and then you learn about who he is later in the book. It's pretty random. It doesn't really go in like... This chapter is this loser, and then this chapter is an adult. It, it's kind of more scattered than that because it's yeah. an insane book written by a man fueled by cocaine. <laughs> so much co- This is a guy who doesn't remember writing Cujo. Uh, so yeah, it was It was actually, it must have been an uphill battle making him like a real character in it, chapter one because all you really had to work with was like, oh, he's afraid. Mm-hmm. So they really played up that he was Jewish in the first one a lot. Did they? I didn't even remember that. He's really af- afraid because he had to get ready to do his bar mitzvah. And he's just afraid of that woman with the flute painting. <laughs> That's everything about him. I remember that. And I guess he's kind of sarcastic, which most of the characters are, so it doesn't add much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we don't see much of him in here, though his presence kind of is throughout the movie because his suicide really affects everyone. It's played by Andy uh, Bean, who was also in Gary Dowerman's Swamp Thing. Another property where he was at the beginning and then wasn't in the whole rest of the thing because he turned into Swamp Thing and then that was it. So he's good for like setting stuff up and then not being in the rest of it. Uh, so yeah, we don't really get much from him. He did get that big redemption though at the end where they show his bar mitzvah scene and then also his letters. His say. letter, uh, which was which was pivotal. And I don't remember that being in the book. So that was kind of a nice thing to flesh him out and make him more than just... The tragic thing that happened to him in the uh, in the '90s version, he's played by Richard Masur, who you guys may remember as the the dog handler guy from from the Thing, Clark. Oh yeah, yeah. The guy who I, was always my go-to pick to play Sean's dad in a movie. <laughs> so hopefully they get on that. It'll be about <laughs> that whole uh, the whole plane controversy. Richard Masur will play your uh, play your dad. Hell yeah! Uh, Let's do it. <laughs> And in the 1990 movie, uh, yeah, he doesn't have much more. He, uh, he of course, has the suicide scene. And then he has another scene that I think is in the book that's insane that I think they considered for this movie, and I'm really glad they cut it. There's a scene later where they're in Mike's library, and a mini fridge starts shaking, and they open it up, and it's Stanley's head, just his head there, and he starts, like, telling jokes. 
And I'm oh, like, but we did get the Stanley's head scene. We did get the Stanley's like, head. Kind of like an homage. The, the thing that was totally ripping off the scene from the thing. I was, and it was the same guy! Richard Masseur! <laughs> that's amazing connection you just made. Yeah, that, that's so bizarre. I thought about that too. I'm glad you also made that connection where the spider legs come out of a decapitated head... And then they say, you gotta be fucking kidding me. Exact line from the thing, exact scene. Why did they do that? <laughs> I will say I'm not that afraid of a giant, like, spider-like head. Why not? It's gotta be a realistic spider for me to be... I think bugs with that, human but... faces are pretty scary. Remember that fly oh, yes. thing? Where uh, whatever with but the what head? about Charlotte from Charlotte's Web? She's, like, totally hot, right? <laughs> mm. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Ben. Call him the Ben. Ben Hanscom. Ben. No. <laughs> he. Uh, New kid. Fat kid. New oh, kid. Oh, okay. New kid. Yeah. Yeah, that guy. That was another character where they really had to flesh him out for chapter one because uh, really all he was in the book and in the original movie was like. Um, uh, he's love struck. He's sensitive. He's a poet. And for some reason, in the first movie, they made him like really interested in the history of dairy, mm-hmm. which was really weird because he's not. That's not him in chapter two at all. Like that's totally that's Mike's character, and that's bizarre because they didn't set up any of that with Mike in the first one. And now Mike's really into the town history. We'll get to it when we talk about Mike, but that guy <laughs> got the shaft. <laughs> got the shaft. So. So yeah, and then this one, Ben is basically just he's he's wistfully sad that like he didn't he never got to be with the girl he wanted to be. He's like super He's hot. He's, he's super hot. Jay Ryan. Amazing misdirect uh, in his first scene where um, they're they're showing each member of the losers club and you get to it this boardroom scene and you see a fat guy get up giving a speech and you're like, Oh, I know who that is. But then they cut to like the <laughs> Skype computer and there's a totally hot guy and he's Ben. It's like, Whoa That's what everybody did in the theater. Yeah, we all Whoa! we all stood up. It was bizarre. I, I didn't have that reaction because I was just trying to remember who all the characters were. I'm in a panic. Who's this? <laughs> What an age we live in to where your character can be introduced via Skype to your movie. Oh, yeah. So cool. <laughs> Just like Vincent D'Onofrio and uh, what's that movie? Oh, where Sinister. His, where his whole part is on Skype. Oh, uh, yeah. Sinister um, with um, James Ransom, who's also in this movie. Oh, so many connections. <laughs> uh, Jay Ryan plays Ben Hanscom. I'm uh, not familiar with him at all. I think he's mostly famous in New Zealand. He's like on New Zealand soap operas and stuff. Stuff to basically exploit his hotness. Yeah. What do you guys think of uh, Jay Ryan's performance? He's super hot. He's super it. hot. Colin, is he hot enough for you? He's hot enough for me. Yeah. You. The he's part, okay. I love the part where he's like getting cut up. and it's He's so rich. Like It's sort of like they're just showing off his abs. Which is bizarre because Isaiah Mustafa is also in this movie and they never show off his abs. What the fuck's up with that? I'm I'm very interested in getting into that when we get into Mike, which will be we'll, we'll do that next. Uh, but yeah, Jay Ryan. I don't think he has much to work with. Some most of the losers don't have that much. I, th- I think he does a good job, and he does kind of look like the kid, which I appreciate. Like it, it, I'm not. It's not gonna be a knock against the actor or the character if they don't look like the kid, but it's always a plus when they do. The thing for me was they kept coming back to that poem over and over and over. I've heard it so many times now. Is that also in the book? Like, yeah. Like, they are just obsessed with this one poem he wrote once. I mean, I don't know if it comes up as often, but it is a big part of the story. Okay. 
Uh, this is really interesting. So in the, in the 90s version, I would say Ben Hanscom is my favorite character. Wow. He's played by John Ritter, who does an excellent job. <laughs> They and they did do such a great job of of um, setting him up as this guy who's like all the success. Like his first scene, he's like coming out of a limo with like a bottle of champagne and, and a woman. But then he just on his bed. He's just like, what? this is empty. I am nothing. Like this is this means nothing to me. That, that totally, I can much more easily imagine John Ritter being someone who has all those insecurities about his past. You know, used to be a fat little kid and mm-hmm. just doesn't feel like um, like the success he has is permanent and. Uh, yeah, now that you point that out to me, that sounds a lot better. He just gives story. off this warmness. He's so nice. He's just he's he's like one of the most likable actors. So he does a great job. Yeah, he's my favorite in the original, in the original movie. So let's talk about Mike. Mike Hanlon, Isaiah Mustafa. Who knew that he acted in movies? Yeah, this is the uh, Old Spice. This is the Old Spice. Isaiah Mustafa. I didn't realize that until like two thirds into the movie. It's like it looks kind of familiar. Yeah, not really sure why. Uh, so Mike, in the in the first movie, he was the homeschool kid. He was the outsider. His um, parents had died in a fire, and he was raised by his uncle, and they killed sheep and stuff. And uh, uh, in this latter half, he's still living in the town. He never left Derry, and he's kind of become obsessed with the history of Derry ever since the uh, ever since the incident, and learned all about. It, including the bizarre rituals and the mythology. This guy got really deep into it. Uh, but let's talk about Isaiah Mustafa. How did how did he do? I thought he did very well, like given the fact that he was cast as this basically like librarian character. You know, you said he got shafted. I, I don't. I, I'm not saying he's like as an actor, uh, like the casting shafted him. I think the, yeah, character, the character got shafted because mm. they've. Like they set him up as the person who brings everyone together, the like keeper of the lore, the one who has the magical urn that they're going to use in the ritual. Um, but they spend absolutely the least time on his childhood. Like you know, his parents are dead, but they don't really explore it. I feel like he's got the least flashbacks. Like I can't even remember anything his little kid did, which is weird because he spent so much time with all the other little kids. Um, he he like he seems like the archetypal main character of this story, but they just don't treat him like that. Yeah, maybe I kind of think of him just like as the brains of the operation, whereas like Bill is supposed to be like the heart of the of the team. Mm-hmm. So he's like co leader. He's like he's like a, the Cyclops to Bill Denbro's Storm. <laughs> that makes any sense. <laughs> But it just never feels like that because they spend so much time on um, on Richie uh, and Eddie, mm-hmm. um, even though they have their whole thing. It's just like a side plot, and and Mike is like digging into the main story, and he has literally the most tragic backstory of all the losers. But the movie just doesn't seem to care about it. Like it just, I feel like in both movies you only see like hands like reaching through a fiery door, and that's it. When there's like long drawn out drawn out scenes of um, girl being <laughs> yeah being abused to... yeah You're right. Be- Beverly yeah uh, Bev <laughs> <laughs> you know it's Stephen King it's back in the eighties it's back when you could just like she's the girl she's of the girl, girl. yes I, yeah as as much as I love Stephen King he hasn't always been the best with female or like um, minority characters like Mike. Um, in the book, also, it doesn't have a lot of time as a kid. He's way more time explaining all this stuff. He's never really that fleshed out. 
And it, I think part of it is because he joined the the, uh, the Losers Club later. Like, if you remember that first movie, he doesn't, like, join up with them till kind of far into the movie. Yeah, and they always treat Ben like the new kid anyway. So it like, is weird that, that dynamic. but, like, even in the book, Mike was still interested in the history. Like, it was consistent. Like I, But it's almost like they'd made it inconsistent because they're like, oh, shit, we don't have anything for Ben to do. <laughs> Except that he's, like, fat. And he, like, he writes a poem. And we gotta talk about it a lot. It's a poem. <laughs> Uh, but I still like Mike. I think it is a pretty good performance. It's it's weird how distinguished Isaiah Mustafa seems now. Like I feel like he seems ten years older than I remember. Probably because I haven't seen his commercials in a long time. Yeah. Probably been ten years since then. But he's really good, and I'd love to see him in more stuff. Like even though he has a kind of a boring part of just I'm gonna tell the ex- I'm giving exposition. I'm gonna tell everything. It's like they could have just had him take his shirt off at one part. Would that have been so much to show off his wounds? Yeah. No, but again, Ben gets the shot off his roots. Ben lifts up his shirt. He's like, check out my abs. That means little cuts on them. Little cut, little cuts. Little cuts. Mike does get to kill uh, Bowers. I'll talk about Bowers a little bit later. Oh, yeah. That's pretty cool. That was weird that that was in this movie. And in the 90s version, uh, Mike is played by Tim Reed, who's like a veteran TV actor. Pretty good. Just like warm, nice guy. Um, pretty similar to his portrayal in this. Um, even he, I feel like even he got more screen time as a kid in that two-movie uh, two miniseries. Because um, in the in the miniseries, it showed him and um, Bill being pretty close friends, which they don't get into at all. Um, I seem to remember some scenes from the miniseries of them just like, as adults, like riding bikes around, they have, there's like, a scene. Laughing. They're like, right? There's like the Temptations. They're playing, and they're like adults, and they're like, oh, playing on a bike. It's kind of like that scene in Butch Cassidy, the Senate's kid, where they're riding a bike. It's a fun scene. A flashback to this kids riding a bike, and then as adults, I'm like, look at low hands, all low that hands. kind of stuff. Uh, good times, good times. Let's talk about Eddie. Uh, Colin, remember Eddie? Um. Is that the asthma kid? That's the asthma kid. Okay. <laughs> Eddie, uh, who, when I rewatched it, uh, part one, I don't know what, I guess chapter one, that's what we'll keep calling it. I think he was my favorite character in that movie. Because Eddie in the books um, is pretty much just like uh, timid, sick. Um, whereas they kind of play, they kind of added in, in, in these current movies that he's also kind of like, makes him kind of like a neurotic like jerk too. <laughs> which I think is a nice addition that he's mm-hmm. like, He's a jerk about his uh, his idiosyncrasies and all and all his issues, which was good. And and for me, this is the best, at least my favorite um, a kid to adult transition, where mm-hmm. I feel like they they not only kind of look like each other, yeah. they act just like each other. And I'm kind of on the fence of whether or not he might be my favorite character in this too, James Ransom, who is not that familiar with. If I'm remembering correctly, they they actually do like a thing where they like fade from the adult into the kid. Mm-hmm. And it's just shocking how it's much they seamless. look like each other. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and and that's probably helped because he's one of the a couple kids in the movie where they very clearly CGI'd the the kid's face to make them look younger because mm-hmm. they grew up a few a lot, they hit some puberty over the past few years and they grew up a bit and uh, I don't know if that's something that bothered you guys but I definitely there are a few scenes with Eddie and Richie in particular where it's like. That is a CGI child. I'm I, you know, at. it's funny. I, I noticed you mentioned that in your letterbox review. I didn't notice. Yeah, I didn't either. I, I was confused. I'm like, when did they film this? They still look pretty young. It, mm-hmm. So it tricked me. I thought it was a good effect. You just have that. It's because you play so many video games, Sean. <laughs> You're like, I know that's fake. That's, You're tricking me. I can put that on a Gundam. <laughs> <laughs> you, the computer is deceiving me. 
this is how Skynet takes over when we get fooled because <laughs> we think it's real people. But Sean will know. <laughs> be powerless to do anything about it. Yeah. But, uh, but I love Eddie. He complains all the time, which was a nice change of pace from the book and the original miniseries. I, I guess because they kind of took his character and kind of turned uh, Stan more into that kind of character of just kind of, I'm just scared mm-hmm. and timid. Um, whereas they made Eddie more kind of a jokey character. Do you think Eddie is too funny? Almost all of his scenes are played for comedic relief. Um, Maybe in parts. <laughs> well, we, we first see him and he's driving around in, in the rain. He's a uh, like a risk assurance guy. Um, I think in the book he was a limo driver. And he's got uh, a wife nagging him. Do you notice his, the actress playing his wife is also the actress that plays his mom? I did. That's that. pretty good. So we meet him like that. And then we got, like, um, even when he gets stabbed in the face, it's played for comedic effect. Like, maybe they could have played that up as more of a terrifying scene. I think the biggest problem is the scene in the drugstore. We got to talk about the drugstore scene, because this is probably the weirdest scene in the whole movie. Why is it so weird? Um, So he's sort of arbitrarily decides to face his fear of... Okay, it's not explained to me. So there's already this ambiguity. So we, we flash back, and when he was a kid, he goes down there, and his mom is tied up, and the leper from the first movie is going to kill his mom. Yes. And he can't untie her in time. He runs away. And later on, he says his mom is dead. So is that how his mom died, or was that all a vision? I mean, its powers are so confusing, I have no idea. I believe that was a, a vision. That was uh, Pennywise trying to trick him or scare him. Okay, so Pennywise didn't kill his mom. No, I don't think so. Okay. Anyway, so as an adult, he goes back down there, and there's a big curtain up, and he pulls the curtain. Wasn't there also a scene where he has a very weird interaction with a pharmacist guy? He, like, touches his face. Oh, yeah, there's the weird... And you're like, is this real? I guess it is. There's just a (laughs) fucking weird pharmacist who's just, like, touching kids' faces. Anyways, go on. (sighs) There are lots of little they brought, weird yeah, things about this I don't know if you noticed, because that was the same pharmacist from the first that. movie. Okay. Yeah, so he was creepy in that, but they are like, let's up it a bit. <laughs> Creepier. He's 27 yeah. years old. I didn't remember him, so I'm just like, this is very odd, but okay. Um. So the leper appears, and he grabs Eddie, and he vomits this black sludge into his mouth, all over his face, all over his body. But as soon as it happens... For some bizarre reason, the movie cues in that, just call me angel of the morning. And I don't know why they would do that. Because this could have been an actually unsettling scene. But I guess they're just like, it didn't work. So we'll just make it funny. (laughs) It's weird because that music cue is so brief. Yeah, Yeah. and then it goes right back to the scary music. It had major Deadpool vibes for me. <laughs> yeah, not just because of the music choice, just because of that, like a joke that just kind of like interrupts a scene yeah, in a way. Like, hey, 80s ballad. Do you think the editor was just like, hey, Andy, check this out? <laughs> <laughs> like, That's so good. We put that in the movie. <laughs> check it out. Oh, God. <laughs> just fucking around. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, Eddie, even like right up to the end, I guess maybe not, I think, you know, maybe they're playing up him being funny so when he dies, it's more tragic. I guess so. Because you're not expecting it. I mean, you guys probably, Sean, maybe you remembered from, maybe you remembered from the miniseries, the, the, the final confrontation, but like, was that pretty surprising to you, Colin, that they killed Eddie? 
Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> feels a little arbitrary. I feel like it's yeah. been arbitrary. In, it was arbitrary in the book too. We'll get to yeah, because it is always weird. Like, how can he kill people really? <laughs> like, you never know. We'll talk about the one so we talk about Pennywise, I think. Die. And when we talk about the final boss yeah, fight, the final boss fight. <laughs> yeah. I think it would have made more sense. And I, I don't want to spoil the final boss fight, but I think it would have made more sense if he did that and then that killed Pennywise. Mm. That would have made it way more meaningful if he like used the, the the spear. Or in the book, it's he sprays his inhaler like it's acid at um, at Pennywise, and it doesn't kill him. He still gets killed. Yeah. Um, Pennywise, I believe, in the book is killed by Beverly. Let's talk about Beverly. I was going to talk about Richie, but let's go to Beverly first. Um, I really like Beverly in Chapter 1. I thought she was really good. She had a lot of personality. She was funny. Um, Sophia Lillis, great job. Uh, no one seems surprised when they cast Jessica Chastain. I feel like when everyone's like, who's going to play adult Beverly? It was always Jessica Chastain. Um... But like only so many redheaded actors. I guess it was going to be either her or Amy Adams. That yeah. was going to be it. Bryce Dallas Howard. Bryce Dallas Howard. They were all in the mix, I'm sure. Do you think Bryce Dallas Howard is old enough to play like early 40s? Well, maybe. I would guess that they're all <laughs> relatively close in age. Yeah. Who do you think is the youngest? Bryce Dallas Howard. Seems like a good bet. Could be Probably. Amy Adams. I'll do a deep right, dive. Call, while you, call uh, punch the numbers. Well, you, uh, uh, but you know, despite the fact that Beverly is one of my favorite characters in the first movie, I don't know that she has that much to do in this movie. What does she do in it, Chapter Two? Really, she falls in love with boys. <laughs> she falls in love with all the boys. Yeah. <laughs> Which is that? A, is that a their way of alluding to the fact that she makes love to all the boys in the book? Jesus Christ! <laughs> so there's the cocaine, man. <laughs> <laughs> there's Stephen King why did you write that scene if you don't know what we're talking about don't read into it <laughs> yeah I, I think it's tough because I don't think adult Beverly is written I don't think I don't even know if kid Beverly is written very well in the book I think they did a good job of kind of rewriting that character for the first movie but then in the second one they didn't have much they had her abusive husband which they don't really do, I don't. I don't know if she ever really overcomes that. Like she, she definitely finds like love with Ben, but I don't feel like she gets past her. I mean, I guess her leaving was her getting past her abuse. It's it's so different from everyone else that all of her horror is related to real people who are still in her life. Yeah. Like as a child, she's dealing with her father. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as an adult she's dealing with her husband and also her father the memories of her father um and it's just it's kind of a bummer for me it is a it, bummer like in, in what is otherwise a pretty fun movie um does these real domestic abuse and, and it's I, also a subject you don't really want to see just kind of glossed over yeah You're right not really given any time to actually like dig into it which it kind of has to be in these movies because there's so many other things to address just and the the way that she overcomes it in this is weird because there's like all this like there was i remember there's blood filling up a bathroom in the first movie mm-hmm. and so in this one also has like a blood filling up a bathroom stall scene and she's choosing to fall in love with ben and that's what gives her the power to live through this i guess instead of being buried alive or drowned in the blood. It just doesn't... It's not a very satisfying character arc for me to watch. 
I really wish I could remember in the book her husband does come to Derry and like is kind of hypnotized in the same way that Henry Bowers is hypnotized. Mm-hmm. And I think they, I think she kills him or he gets killed, which would have been way more satisfying. Yeah. I wonder if they had something like that in one cut of this movie. Cause I heard like 90 minutes were cut. Some ridiculous <laughs> number was cut. Maybe. So they could have had him in and then cut him out. And you know, that probably also makes sense to cut though, because the stuff with Pennywise's powers over real people and why Pennywise would choose to make real people his minions are so weird to think about, too. I can explain that more when we get in. I'll, I will touch on Bowers after we touch on the Losers Club, because it makes a little more sense in the book. Not that much more, but a little <laughs> okay. more. Um, but yeah, she doesn't have much to do. Um, she's she's okay in the miniseries. In the miniseries, she does get to kill Pennywise. She's like the final... She kills him in the final battle. The crappy... Uh, <laughs> I haven't really talked about it in the original miniseries... Uh, Pennywise turns into a stop-motion crab spider that's also a puppet in close-ups and looks so bad. It almost (laughs) ruins the movie. For some reason, my little brothers thought that was the scariest part of the movie. Like, way scarier than the clown. I mean, you always hear about that movie being, like... It's it's best remembered by people who saw it when they were kids. Mm -hmm. I think it works. That's why I was comparing it to Are You Afraid of the Dark? I feel like it's that level where it's just scary enough for kids. But an adult sees it and they're like... Yeah, yeah, it's crab spider, I guess. <laughs> but uh, and I think that she may kill it in the book too. Uh, the, that final battle in the book is super weird, psychic battles and, and all sorts of crazy shit going on. But in the miniseries, uh, she, con- she has like a slingshot as a kid and as an adult, and she like gets her slingshot and like they just has like a piece of silver and like shoots it into the the spider's chest and blows up the deadlights, and it's pretty cool. Uh, so I, I kind of wish they'd done that in in this movie. Had let Beverly kind of be the final blow yeah. would have been a nice way to maybe give her something to do yeah, instead of just being this passive character who just reacts to male interest in her. Yeah, kind of a missed opportunity. Uh, let's talk about. I will say, yeah, Bryce Dallas Howard oh. is the youngest of the the Hollywood redhead crew. Nice. Um, Amy, she's a thirty-eight, mm-hmm. so maybe she could have been in this. Do you remember the not. other ages? Amy Adams is the oldest at forty-five, oh, wow. and then uh, Jessica Chastain's in the middle at forty-two. We just derailed Amy Adams' career by acknowledging her age. <laughs> she seems young, though. I could yeah, believe I would she's, guess she's a little 30s. younger than that. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, Miss Opportunity with Beverly. Let's talk about opportunity they took full advantage of. Richie Tozier. Bill Hader. What's there to say? Colin, how do you feel? This is you. This is you in the movie. <laughs> how do you feel like about me, this? Except he wears a leather jacket. Hair's a little longer. He's, he's you're everything. He's, he's like actually him. doing stand up. I never did stand up. Yeah. Yeah, but he's not but, writing his jokes. That's true. You just need to find a writer. <laughs> yep. Why do you think this is everyone's favorite character? What is it about him that works so well? Is it all Bill Hader? <laughs> A lot of it's Bill Hader. Um, probably also plays into the fact that the movie often works best when it's a comedy and he's the most comedic <laughs> character. <laughs> it's kind of nice to have that character that realizes the ridiculousness of the situation, whereas yeah. everyone takes it pretty seriously. Mm-hmm. Maybe not Eddie, but like Richie will like kind of break down. It's like, this is fucking crazy, right? <laughs> like that, my favorite scene in the whole movie. I was going to save for like specific scare scenes for a little later, um, but we can talk about it now. Favorite scene in the movie is when him and Eddie are down in the caves, and there's the three doors, like in the first movie, that say scary, not very scary, like really scary, and they go through that one door, and there's the little dog, 
And Blade was like, no, that thing's a fucking monster. <laughs> I was laughing my ass off. It was so good. I just he just brought like this energy. He's on this wavelength that's totally working for me. Um, just subdued enough. Like he's he's funny, but not in like an asshole sarcastic way. It's like in a I don't know. It's just like in a nice like relatable way. I thought they did a really good job um, adding layers to the young uh, Eddie Richie. Sorry, yeah, Richie uh, by. Um, implying that he was closeted mm-hmm. and um and that's why he was overcompensating by always making sexual jokes all the time yeah. when he was a little kid it, like it totally makes sense that he would grow up to be uh, a, a comedian and, and also someone who is gay i thought that was um that was a good touch that i don't know if that's in the other it stuff i certainly don't remember that from the miniseries no i don't think so i don't even know if in the book I, I do kind of feel like when it when it came to um, what Richie's really afraid of, it always kind of seemed like an afterthought. I, maybe they thought he was interesting enough and we didn't need to get into that. Like in the first, if you remember the first movie, that movie was built a lot like how this one was built, where it'd be like, um, character enters scene, experiences the thing they're afraid of, go to next character, same thing. <laughs> Rich, um, Richie didn't have that in the first movie. They're just like, what are you afraid of? He's like, clowns. And then in this movie, his... Uh, painful flashback is the arcade scene where he's going to get his token which is literally a token mm-hmm. um, I guess we do get to experience like him feeling insecure about him about himself um, and then he's attacked by Paul Bunyan <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah and, well, there is that cool scene I really like the scene with adult Richie meeting uh, Pennywise at the park and he's like Pennywise is, like singing a song and the people are like swaying in the background <laughs> Do you guys like that scene? I feel like some people may not like that scene. I think it was fine. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's okay. Was that unconnected to the Paul Bunyan scene? In my mind, it's the same scene. I feel <laughs> like... Not. I think it is connected because it's the same park. Like, he's... he's Again, this is like they're going back and forth <laughs> with this movie. He goes to, like, the arcade, and he has the flashback, and then in the flashback, the kid walks out to the park, attacked by Paul Bunyan, and then it goes to Bill Hader sitting in the park, and then Pennywise approaches him. I think that's how that all plays Mm -hmm. out, and he's, like, floating, and the people in the back setting up for the parade or whatever are swaying back and forth, and there's some weird old-timey music number. I thought that was pretty cool. I think in the book, uh, his big thing that he was afraid of was uh, there's there's a scene where um, he goes to the movies with Beverly and they see I was a teenage werewolf. So he's constantly like being tormented by a werewolf. Mm-hmm. But I guess I guess Hollywood just doesn't think werewolves are scary anymore. <laughs> so like got rid of the werewolf. Thanks a lot, Teen Wolf. Thanks a lot. Teen Wolf fucking ruined everything. <laughs> uh, I like Paul Bain as a, as a monster for him too because obviously that's like a hyper-masculine, you know, heteronormative icon. I didn't even think about that. That's actually pretty smart. Um... Yeah, let's talk. Let me let me talk briefly about Richie uh, in the the made for TV movie because he's my least favorite character in that version. He's played by Harry Anderson from Night Court, uh, who's very much playing the kind of like '80s, late '80s comic kind of like like a Howie Mandel. So deal with airplanes. Exactly, and every time he launches into that, it's like. He's not that bad, but it's just it's the jokes are really lame. It really hurts the character. It made me think about how weird it is, like that. 
they, that's what I guess a comedian was to people back then. Mm-hmm. But like today, a comedian is like a slacker guy. It's like, well, uh, I guess I had a boner today. <laughs> that's the comedian of today. <laughs> <laughs> kind of the Louis C.K. humor. Saying the creepiness. <laughs> Yeah, I think that is the creepiness. <laughs> He's talking about his boner on stage. He's like, what are you doing with that boner? All right, we're almost through all these losers. <laughs> That's what they're called, the Losers Club. No. Uh, Bill Denbro. Jaden Lieberher in the, uh, in the first movie. And James McAvoy. He's our lead. He's basically the surrogate for Stephen King. How do we feel about Bill? He got shafted as well not as much as mike got <laughs> shafted but i mean obviously like he's got he's a successful author mm-hmm. and he's got a wife and a life but that's all for one scene and then they just brush it aside um and i get that they're doing like a people are reverting into their child self thing so like he starts stuttering more and more the longer he's back in dairy um I don't know. Did anyone else even have that aspect of it? Or was that just Bill that was reverting? I don't think so. I think it was just Bill. Just Bill. Yeah. Um, yeah it would be funny if the hot guy is just like pounding hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> maybe Eddie was like using his inhaler more. I mean, he had to go buy an inhaler. So maybe that was part of it. Ben got sent back to the fort. Yeah. The, the crucial fort that everyone loved in the first movie, except it wasn't in it. <laughs> That's kind of weird when they like invented seeds like that. I guess you didn't want to do the same stuff again. Um, we'll talk about the flashbacks pretty soon. Um, yeah, I don't think James McAvoy was a good choice. I, I don't know if he's, if he's if it's necessarily that he was a bad choice or it's just that the character is, just, again, it's just flat. I think it is a little flat. Um... Though I do like his first sequence where he's struggling to write the ending of uh, of the, the, the rewrite for his script. And um, there's that great scene where he walks onto the Warner Brothers lot uh, where they're doing his movie. And it's being directed by Peter Bogdanovich. <laughs> Did not expect that. <laughs> Zooms in on Zooms a crane. In, like 80-year-old Peter Bogdanovich. He's like, I'm going to direct this horror <laughs> movie. He does a good job. He's a, good, he's a decent actor, too. Yeah. He's Peter, the director. That's how he's <laughs> But yeah, I don't know. Bill doesn't have that much to do. I get kind of tired of the Georgie stuff after a while. I feel like we got a lot of that in the first movie. It's like, oh, what's going to happen when Bill like goes through a door? He's going to see Georgie. And he's going to be like, Georgie. It's like, no, it's not real. Yeah. Like, I get it. Like, don't you know that it's not Georgie? <laughs> yeah, I guess I didn't even think about it. But that's sort of my problem with, with him and Beverly is that they're retreading the trauma from the first movie instead of um dealing with it in a more adult way or in in a, in, a, in a way that shows that 27 years have passed and they've had time to grow and change and and deal with these as parts of their lives it just goes right back to the same dynamic as the first movie i guess he does kind of have that subplot of him becoming invested in that skateboard kid yeah. and trying to protect that skateboard kid He's uh, popping up in the movie, and they have that um, Hall of Mirrors scene, which I don't remember in the book or the miniseries. Uh, the scene that where the movie has to have a big warning about, about epile- epile- epilepsy. I didn't mean to stutter when talking about Bill because he stutters. Yeah, uh, and that's another weird case of like how much of that was real. I don't understand Pennywise's powers at all. I have no idea. We're almost to talk about Pennywise. <laughs> The ultimate loser. The ultimate loser. 
Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything I should touch on Bill before I talk about Bill in the uh, in the made. For, I'll just go to that. Uh, so Bill in the made for TV movies, played by Richard Thomas, who is uh, John Boy on the Waltons. Mm. I think you guys probably know him from. I think he's on the Americans. He is. He's like. Uh, he's a, he's a boss man at the FBI. Yeah. He's he's pretty likable in the uh, in the in the 1990. It he definitely feels more of like the the surrogate for the audience. He's just like a ni- nice, warm, likable guy who's really into his horror books. He has a really bad ponytail, which I really like. <laughs> you gotta like look at it sometime. It's really funny. That's definitely a look that would only be accept- acceptable in 1990 and 1990 only. And he gets a lot of screen time, um, and he gets a lot of time in the book too, like. Just kind of getting to know his home life, which I feel like makes him more relatable. Just mm-hmm. knowing his struggles as as a uh, as an artist, and uh, I love the fact I was gonna go. I was gonna have a section for cameos, but I don't think I need it. I love the fact that he's basically Stephen King, so he gets to go into the pawn shop and meet Stephen King. How do you guys feel about that Stephen King cameo? That was really funny. Do you think Stephen King is a good actor or does a good job? <laughs> he seemed to be holding it down yeah. in, in this one scene. He's done it a couple times. Yeah. He did the voice. He did a great New England accent. I, he has a little bit of that in his own voice, but he's really ramping it up. <laughs> I didn't like the ending. <laughs> it was a job right up. It's such a tough accent, but he does a great job. Uh, so, yeah, that was pretty fun to see him in there. I, I, I kind of made me wish that he was like doing more of a Stan Lee thing where he's popping up in all these movies because there's been so many Stephen King adaptations especially over the past few years like he should have been in Pet Cemetery. hopefully he's in Doctor Sleep or something um but yeah I don't know I guess we'll see Maybe it's harder in movies that are supposed to actually be scary, <laughs> but this one <laughs> this has all fun. It has all these yeah. Maybe it's supposed to be scary, moments. but it is fun. Yeah. Okay, almost a Pennywise. <laughs> I want to talk about Henry Bowers, uh, who was played by Nicholas Hamilton in the first one, the bully. Pretty good in that one. Um, this time played by Teach Grant. Did he need to be in this movie? <laughs> Didn't particularly feel like it. It was really weird, too. Like, he's in, like, three scenes. The thing where we first meet him, I guess maybe three or four. And then, like, um, Patrick Hockstetter, who was one of his goons from the first movie, comes mm-hmm. to the to the asylum where he's at and brings him his knife. Patrick Hockstetter, again, way more fleshed out in the book. Uh, and they drive to Derry because uh, Pennywise tells him to kill the losers because I guess he can't do it or something. So he does, and he has one confrontation with them where he stabs Eddie in the face. And then again, when he fights Mike and Mike kills him, but it's not even like the end of the movie. It's like a little bit past the midpoint, so it's not even like we built up to it. It makes me wonder if some stuff was cut. Uh, so I, I think let me see if I can cut, try to recall how he makes more sense in the book. So one interesting detail about the book um, when they're adults is that Pennywise doesn't want them to come back when they're adults. He mm-hmm. doesn't want them to come back. Mike makes everyone come back because the murders start happening again 27 years later. Pennywise doesn't want to mess with these guys again because they fucked with them the first time. So Pennywise, yeah, doesn't want them to come back. So he reaches out to Bowers, who he had contacted as a kid. Uh, so he's manipulated him before, like like in the movie. And he kind of uses Bowers to stop the losers, like from fucking with them, you know, because he doesn't want them to come back. So that's what 
Bowers does. And in the book, he fights Mike and mortally wounds Mike, which takes Mike um, out of the final battle of the book and of the miniseries. And that's kind of an interesting move because Mike knows all about the ritual of, of Chewed and like how to defeat Pennywise. So you take him out of the equation, then it's like, oh God, we're even weaker and we're down the person who knows like what we're supposed to do. Can we still do it? So it kind of creates more tension. Uh, so I think Bowers does make a lot more sense um, in the book and in the miniseries, even though he's a pretty shitty character in the miniseries. Uh, and I don't know why they couldn't have done that. I, I think it's because like they're like, well, this movie doesn't have very good representation of other ethnicities or, or women, so we can't take uh, Mike out of the final battle. But it's, then just take Bowers out. Yeah, they, they had the thing where they threw him down a well in the first movie. It seemed like they could have just been like, well, he's dead. It's weird because if they hadn't included... Henry Bowers, uh, I feel like your, your Reddit community, your diehards would be like, Whoa, how come, what happened to Bowers? They used back in the book. But now I feel like they brought him back and those same people are like, Whoa, why'd they bring him back? They didn't use him right. So it's like a lose-lose situation. I can understand. I like that the Reddit community are huge Bowers fans. It's, it's not that they're huge Bowers fans, they're huge fans it's just of, really like, relatable. of staying true to the source material. Any changes are bad. And he's a bad dude. Let's talk about the baddest dude of them all. The big one, guys. Pennywise. Shaft. Shaft. <laughs> you, want, you want to talk about oh, Shaft man. right now? This is going to turn into a review of that Shaft movie. I never saw it. Well, maybe you'll pick it. I totally forgot about it. Okay, that. Pennywise. Uh, God, how do we feel about this portrayal? I don't even know where to start this conversation. There's so many thoughts going through my mind. Um... It felt more sticky this time around, I think. Um, like, already they had made a big commitment to he doesn't shapeshift as much. He's mostly a clown, which is in line with the miniseries as far as I remember it, too. Um, but this movie had, a like, all the same, like, little gag. Gags is the wrong word, but ticks, I guess, <laughs> yeah. uh, that, he, that he does in the first movie. But he did them... Uh, like one or two times before and now he's doing it in every scene he's got a lazy eye in like every scene he's got the droopy lip with drool coming out like every scene he's like ready to dance anytime he moves he's dancing it's it, it felt very much like we know that Pennywise was super successful we know that scene with him doing the dance was like iconic <laughs> like we got parodied by SNL we were a hit um, so so the, the people that are seeing this movie want more clown and we're gonna give it to them damn it including making the giant spider a giant clown spider but it's weird that to include them they basically have just make up scenes that aren't in the book because i think what works so well about pennywise in the book is he just kind of pops up occasionally you know like he mm -hmm. takes so many different forms he's so much more than the clown and, and in the first movie it was always in or not always, but a lot of the time it was you wouldn't see it coming. Like you'd see Pennywise is like in a painting or the in the 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 slide reel that they're going through. You know, it wasn't just like I'm in the corner and I'm gonna get you. Yeah. Uh. So yeah, they don't they don't really know how to use him. How, how's the performance? How's Bill Skarsgård? You know, the same. Same. But it's like, <laughs> but was that a good performance to begin with? I think so. Okay, so yeah. I like it. Yeah. He does. It's a good voice. It's uh, it's probably not an easy. You know, only so many people could do that. Mark mm -hmm. Hamill could do it. <laughs> uh, 
But yeah, I guess though the biggest problem with Pennywise, and this is a problem in the miniseries and the book and everything, is what's he doing? What's his plan? <laughs> why? It's so confusing why he doesn't why he doesn't kill people when he can, and then also when can you hurt him is never consistent. Yeah. That's it's it's bizarre. Like what level like sometimes people are like i believe i can fight him and then nope but the other times i believe oh no i'm dying <laughs> What's um going on there? yeah you get scenes like the one with the little girl in this one which was one of the scarier scenes in the movie where she's really insecure about her uh, birthmark on her face mm-hmm. and he sort of seduces her into the shadows and then just chomps her chomps her um, and when you see him do that, the question you have to ask yourself is, why doesn't he do this to every single kid? I mean, I guess he did it to Georgie as well at the very beginning. He chomped his arm. But, like, he's had that opportunity with every single one of the losers to just chomp. And it doesn't make any sense why he wouldn't just take that chomp. Well, I know one thing is that in the book, uh, the more scared they are, the tasty they are. But... <laughs> I feel like the problem with that is, don't you think he'd be most scary the first? He'd be most scary the first time you ever see yeah. him. Yeah, Th- that's a hundred percent the thing is because <laughs> the movies are about them learning to not be afraid of it. Yeah, I think another thing uh, they tried how they try to defend it in the book is that as kids they were protected by the cosmic space turtle. They were. Yeah, which and, and I think the cosmic space turtle like is dead by the time they're adults, <gasps> so they've lost that kind of that barrier. But also, like I was saying. Uh, Pennywise didn't want them to come back as adults, mm-hmm. so that kind of makes more sense. But in the movies, the deal? Been... I, I can't let you gloss over cosmic space. <laughs> so you know, they explain <laughs> that Pennywise is basically an alien. A meteorite came down. Okay. He's really, I think his true form are probably just those three flashing lights, the dead lights. Yeah. And uh, from wherever he's from, his realm, his arch nemesis is a giant space turtle. He has a name I can never remember. It's like Materin or something. And uh, Modern finds out that Pennywise is on this planet tormenting people, so he uh, bans down. I don't know why these kids, like, Pennywise has been down there for, like, a millennium killing people. He's like, I'm going to finally step in and fix this shit. Maybe there's more explanation to that to protect these kids. But then at some time, the space turtle dies. Um, and, you, and you can see there's a lot of, like, nods to turtles throughout the movie. Yeah, I remember one prominent turtle. Like turtle it's prop. Like it's classroom like a classroom scene. Yeah, there's like a classroom and there's like a like either like a statue or something of a turtle, and there's like a turtle swimming by mm-hmm. in uh, in the first movie. So they acknowledge the importance <laughs> of the turtle. Uh, but yeah, Pennywise is this uh, intergalactic evil who came to Earth to eat people, but also have fun with them because it makes them tastier. <laughs> But yeah, the problem with these movies though is they never come up with a good reason. Like the book, the book's reasons may be half-assed in, in like defending why Pennywise doesn't kill the kids, but the movie doesn't even try. Um, you know something that I, I heard the other day that I thought was kind of interesting is maybe the reason they uh, King did that and they go for that is because um, Pennywise is supposed to be a metaphor for a bully, just like a, like a school bully, where like a bully will like beat you up and tease you but he's not very smart <laughs> will murder you you know his, his decisions are irrational I don't know if that's a great uh, explanation but I kind of re- 
it's kind of interesting when it's about a film about adoles- adolescence. Yeah, I think that that works, except in, in t- when you take into account, well, he just killed Georgie immediately. Um, but definitely, I think the strength of this movie, just like the first one, is it's is it it being a story about friendships and adults coming together and having that common shared trauma as a as a bond that that keeps them tight with each other mm-hmm. i think that works so to make the villain part of that thematically makes sense for the rest of this i kind of broke it up into we can either talk about like stuff we liked or stuff we didn't like or maybe even more interesting we can maybe think of ways they could have fixed this movie First, before we get into that, let's, let's mention some 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 stuff we like or scenes we like. Like uh, for me, uh, I already mentioned the dog scene. I actually really like the old woman scene. I know a lot of people think it's f- stupid and funny, and every time that trailer would show with Mrs. Kirsch running around naked in the apartment, everyone would laugh. But I don't know. Like I thought it was creepy, and then when she comes out as like, oh no, she's not she's not old lady. She's mutant old lady. <laughs> I thought that was actually pretty scary. I thought that was pretty cool. So, points. I like that scene. I just thought that scene was, like, such a unimaginative horror scene. I guess. <laughs> like, like I said, she's old lady, and but, but no, she's actually a crazy old lady, yeah. looking crazy. She's, like, tall and has googly eyes. <laughs> like, as soon as the scene starts, you know exactly what's going to happen, mm-hmm. even if you've not read the book or seen the miniseries before. It's like, oh, and also because that's Pennywise's M.O., and it's also in a montage of scenes where that's basically exactly what happens to every single member of the Losers. Which, that, for me, is a big problem with this movie, is when everyone splits up, it starts doing side quests, and it's the exact same formula of have a memory, Pennywise shows up, run away from Pennywise. This is a little repetitive. It's funny, I like those scenes, but for some reason, once we finish one, and then we're like... Oh, we're doing it again. Okay, well, just another side quest. I'm sure I'll like part of this sequence, but again, it's like we're going through it one more time. Okay, padding out the main game. I'm just trying to get to the boss fight. <laughs> it's funny how this does kind of feel like a video game too. There's the side <laughs> quest where all the characters split up. I don't think the totems thing was in the book. I actually kind of like the totems thing where they each have to collect something that's meaningful to them to burn mm-hmm. in the the thing. And of course, that's undercut with the pretty funny jokes about like, oh, that rock's not going to burn in this fire. <laughs> I mean, the the ritual of chewed is so fucking stupid. I don't <laughs> mind that. Uh, and that final boss fight. Oh boy. I guess it's okay. <laughs> it's so... Like, we like we walked out of the movie being like, well, so this was like the Avengers Endgame for horror <laughs> movies. <laughs> this movie does feel a lot like Endgame to me. And that it's like constantly bouncing between characters and you feel like if you don't remember the first movie or remember a lot of other details before you go into it's gonna be kind of confusing <laughs> they're trying to be like it was all leading to this but it's, it's <laughs> what the fuck are we doing it's bizarre there everyone's running around fighting the spider it's so weird it's it's not scary at all because he feels so fake like I guess it is surprising that he actually does impale Eddie because you're just like, oh, I've seen a million movies where there's a giant, like, the Scorpion King shows up. <laughs> <laughs> so many Scorpion King movies. <laughs> there's 
the mummy returns. And I know, and there's I know the Scorpion King. And I know what happens. The Scorpion, Scorpion King, King shows too? up, and you is roll around. You roll, you roll around, and they CG the Scorpion King in, hitting where you just were. Yeah. Um, and that's what it felt like in this. Um, if it wasn't for the part with the doors, it would have been a totally forgettable sequence. They kind of copped out on what Pennywise's final form was. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess like his final form is I, like I I watching this movie, and if I'd not known it like anything about the books, I would guess that the deadlights were his final form, and he's still just taking this. And I guess I'm okay with that. But just seeing a big Pennywise spider, I don't know. I felt a little anticlimactic. I like it when his like big head was turning into like oh now it's a big spider with Beverly's dad's head on it. Even though they already kind of did that in the first movie, where his head would switch into different. Uh... I, I just wanted you guys to know there are five Scorpion King movies. What oh the gosh. fuck? The Scorpion King, the Scorpion King: Rise of a Warrior. I would assume that's a prequel. Then there is the Scorpion King Three: Battle for Redemption <laughs> with Dave Bautista. Okay. Does any of do any of them have uh, Dolph Lundgren? Um. I'll have to get back to you on that. The Scorpion King 4 Quest for Power and the Scorpion King Book of Souls, which came out oh. last year. So there's six if you count the money returns. That's that's true. Jesus Christ, six Scorpion King. Well, I know what we're watching next episode. <laughs> uh, let's see, final boss fight. Colin, you didn't mention if there's any scenes or anything in particular that you liked. Um... Not that we didn't already didn't talk already about. Talk about okay. I guess the first scene where they get together at the uh, Chinese restaurant where oh, they're yeah, like fighting a bunch of monsters and then you cut away and you see that they're just smashing the table with a chair. That's that's pretty funny. That's one of those scenes I'm thankful that we get to see this movie made in this day and age because you watch that scene in the 1990 version and it's okay. I kind of appreciate that it's smaller and more subtle, but it's it's a lot goofier. It's like Harry Anderson opens a fortune cookie. There's just an eye looking at him. That's it. And like someone else opens one, it just has blood spurts in their face. That's it. And instead, you get stuff like that weird like maggot fly baby thing, and the eye has like all these tendrils coming out. Mm-hmm. And I love the reaction to it. It was great. Yeah. But it also makes me so confused about Pennywise's powers because <laughs> they show the um, the waitress or whatever's point of view, mm-hmm. and you see that they're just like smashing the tables, and there's nothing on the table. But from their point of view, they're smashing eyeball monsters. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what the fuck does that mean? I'm glad you touched on that too because it's incredibly inconsistent. Because there's the scene that we talked about where Eddie's in the pharmacy and he gets all the black mucus all over him, and he walks out. And maybe it's just the losers can see it because they can see that stuff, but it looks like he's actually covered in black mucus. So. Yeah. And he stays covered for a while because that's like he's going up into the shower when Bowers stabs him, and mm-hmm. so he doesn't even get to get cleaned off. So, yeah, weird inconsistencies. So, I guess this brings me to the next point is how could they have fixed this movie? What could they have done to make it work? Because I think the first one which is fairly straightforward, works pretty well. But this one can't stand on its own. It needs that first movie. It is there does. any way they could have fixed it? And I feel like they're also relying really heavily on what worked in the first movie. Mm-hmm. So I think they should have like, somehow planned to just make these movies back-to-back. I think taking the time in between the two was a mistake. Um, because they, they the movie felt like it had to refresh us on what was going on. Yeah. And it, it felt like they were obligated to bring back the kids and do extra flashback scenes instead of just making a movie about the adults. I like some of the flashbacks just because I like the kids, but I think 
don't know if it would have been a better movie, but I I think it would have been a better decision to just cut all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, it is just so hard to do in movie form. So I think this end result of both of these movies is pretty impressive. Like you definitely had to make it, the story more mainstream, but I think that book is so batshit insane that it was a good idea to go more mainstream and to dial back some of the craziness and to make it more like a blockbuster adventure movie instead of a deeply disturbing psychological horror mess. Yeah, and I, and I think we touched on this earlier, where I think one of Stephen King's strengths is taking the supernatural uh, as a means of exploring common experiences mm-hmm. and... Uh, and, the, and that totally works in both these movies. Like I, like I said before, it's about friendship and and shared trauma and the bonds that keep us together. I think all that works in in both films. Do you think uh, Do you think the success of the first movie changed what how the, what this movie became? Do you think it would be different if the first movie wasn't as successful? I wonder, or probably, or would it maybe just be the same? It, it might have been shorter. <laughs> yeah, I know. I guess that's one thing is where it's like, well, it did so well, we're going to, you know, make it, you know, like, we're going to double the budget and we're going to make it, like, uh, Avengers length. Yeah, and I, mean, I, I guess I just mean the director probably had a little more free reign to keep more scenes in um, than the studio wanted. Which is pretty cool. Like, how often do you get a three hour long R-rated horror movie <laughs> never Not this often. is like the most exp- I, I don't know I don't know the exact budget but it feels like the most expensive horror movie I've ever seen mm-hmm. I'm sure there's some that are more expensive but you don't see horror blockbusters it's not really something that happens mm-hmm. so it's a rare treat <laughs> to be enjoyed I just didn't like the Enon <laughs> no Enon was fine <laughs> uh, yeah the very ending of the movie like the letter yeah, yeah I, I thought like it was that. fine. I actually thought, um, despite the fact that Stephen King is clearly venting in this story about the fact that people criticize his endings, I think it, um, despite the lame reveal of Pennywise as a spider... And we, uh, and we never even talked about, like, in great detail, that they defeat Pennywise by yelling at... by bullying him, and he gets deflated, and then they pull out his heart, and they all, as a team, squish his heart. Yeah, you guys like weird... Uh, uh, Puppet baby Pennywise. I've been thinking about that a lot. It really creeps me out. It's pretty sad. It reminded me of Voldemort when in the afterlife part in uh, the last Harry Potter movie. Yeah. Um, but I like everyone's just squishing his heart. Didn't feel any more permanent to me than the way that they defeated him in the first movie. I mean, he even just kind of dusts away, which is the exact same thing that happened to him in the first movie. Yeah. I don't know. They should have like squashed, like squashed his head in. <laughs> I didn't see all the all the goo come out. My goo. Which I guess it's only sort of a problem because I feel like the movie wants you to be like, we've done it, we've overcome this obstacle. Uh, if they had gone for more of a, like we've done the best we could, and we have to just move on, ending, it it would have been better. Because I just wasn't, I'm just not convinced it is dead. He's coming back. They probably want you to think there's a chance he can come back. Because I'm sure there's some horrible executive who's like, yeah, in chapter three, maybe. Let's get a team of 70 year olds. <laughs> oh, man. I can't wait to do the dream cast for that. You know, you got like, uh, what's his name? Judd Hirsch. <laughs> it's Bill Denbro. <laughs> 
Plus is dairy in the 2040s, so that's pretty exciting. <laughs> oh yeah, everyone's got like space cars and uh, credit discs, <laughs> cyber suits, bicentennial man, all that good stuff. <laughs> bicentennial man, the movie. <laughs> Maybe uh, Pennywise is a bicentennial man. He comes back as a cyborg or a robot or something. Yeah. He just wants to be a man. But everyone keeps making him a monster. Interesting. This is an interesting take for a chat. This is probably exactly what the executives' meetings are like. They just throw this shit around. And then Gary Doberman, go write this. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I really think the only way to make this better is make it a TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a shame that the miniseries, they wanted it to be like eight episodes originally, and they only got to do two. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though I do like these movies a lot, it, it does seem like it would be better if it w- would have been like a maybe a ten episode TV show or maybe less maybe less than that and just constantly do the flashback and flash forward for the whole way through like the book mm-hmm. which I know sounds disorienting but I think you could make it work because then you can better appreciate the parallels between what's going on and the two timelines because that was what was kind of nice about the miniseries is it's mostly them as adults like it'll be like um, the adults coming back and then they see something and it flashes back to their kids scenes hmm. and I thought that was kind of a nice approach I think if you did another TV show I mean we're probably done with this hopefully at least for a while but that would be a nice way to do it again if you had to do it again it does make me wonder if um when this comes out on blu-ray or dvd there's for sure there's going to be some different edits of this mm-hmm. and i'd love to see them do the hateful eight thing where they like chop it up into like a mini series mm-hmm. i still haven't checked that out but you know how they chop hateful eight on netflix to like four episodes yep. Sounds like they're going to do that with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, too. Really? Yeah. They have something like 90 minutes of cut footage as well. They should yeah. do it with this, man. 90, uh, 90 minutes, man. They, uh, there's an interview with Brad Pitt where he talks about, like, like I'm a dinosaur. I like movies. Kids these days aren't into that sort of stuff. They, they want yeah. total control over how long they're watching media, and so they want these episodes. Hmm. I wonder where an it miniseries would end up. Because Warner Brothers, I feel like Warner Brothers is pretty tight with HBO, HBO Max, man. Mm-hmm. It all comes back to HBO Max, because uh, we all float on HBO Max. We all float in st- the streaming world. In the stream. <laughs> oh God, there's so much to talk about. I think we're good though. <laughs> Uh, the consensus it's okay it's not that bad it's it's a little much it's a little indulgent there's some fun scenes it's kind of a fun experiment I I got kind of glad it's done yeah so uh, let's be thankful that Stephen Edwin King drove by that bridge that one day in 1978 uh you know, I bet they'd be another one if he wrote another book. I wonder if he's thinking about that. Let's cash in. He wrote a sequel to The Shining. He can do whatever the fuck he wants. <laughs> Maybe we'll talk about that on a future episode. But we'll have to wait uh, because it's not my pick again, and I can't pick a movie that hasn't come out yet. <laughs> <laughs> it is... Colin, it's your pick, right? It, it is my pick. Sorry to make you wait so long. That's fine. Um, okay, so my pick... Scorpion King... Should it be Scorpion four. King 4? <laughs> I Okay, so Scorpion King 4... 
that's got it's got it doesn't have Dolph Lundgren in it, but it does have Luferigno. <laughs> it also has who else is in this? Barry Bostwick, Rutger Hauer, Michael Bean, and M. Emmett Walsh. It's like C list expendables. Yeah. Pretty white. <laughs> well, <laughs> these are the only names I recognize. I assume you know, there's a bunch of young hot people, but I don't, I don't recognize any good, of these yeah. good, young good, hot good. names. Just these old white men. Um, so, you know, <laughs> my pick is one that is very much connected to a movie that um, everybody seems to equate with me these days. <laughs> and I thought, like, this is definitely a good movie for the pick. It's not on streaming, so I, I'd like to watch it before I, I move. So we only have to do a rental. It is Looney Tunes back in action. Oh, fuck oh. yeah. Hell, wait, did people say this is like your life? What? People always... I'm the Space Jam guy now. So I was like... I'm so fucking excited I've never seen Looney Tunes back in action. It seems like a very interesting film just because yes. it seems like it ended a lot of people. Careers, <laughs> namely Joe Dante and, yeah. and Brendan Fraser. Uh, yeah, speaking of the Mummy Returns, yeah. So I don't know much about it either. Like I know a couple things. I know like Space Jam. It has like a reference that only adults would appreciate. Like it has a psycho joke in it. <laughs> the kids love that stuff. Yeah. Steve Martin's in it. Yeah. Pay, playing a very cartoonish-looking business. Does he have man. a goofy mustache? I think he's got a goofy wig. Oh, even better. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that should be fun. Let's see what those tunes are up to. And, you know, they're working on Space Jam, too. Yeah, I'll set that up nicely. Yep. Yeah, Steve Martin does not have a funny message, but he has a hilarious wig. Yep. He looks like a turtle. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like one of the characters that Dana Carvey would turn into in Master of Disguise. <laughs> Uh, I found the artwork too we can use for when we post that on the blog. <laughs> it uh, says that's all folks and has a poorly photoshopped Brendan Fraser like circa 2001 over the Porky Pig place and uh, Steve Martin is in the bottom left. Uh, it's like 70s Steve Martin yeah, and then a photorealistic <laughs> rabbit and a Daffy Duck. What is that outfit he's wearing? Uh, like he's got like dancer? a Chiquita Banana Lady. Yeah, okay. It says a fresh look at the daring Looney Tunes back in well, we'll have to do an even fresher look. Oh yeah, right. I guess I gotta end this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, if uh, if you like this, um, you can check out more episodes of the Pick on mildlypleased.com. You can also find us on iTunes by searching Mildly Pleased and check out some of our other podcasts. Um, so yeah, just just check us out because we all float <laughs> on on Mildly Pleased. Good to double down on that. Yeah.